Good morning. My name is Jesse Robinson. I'm a pastor here at Trinity, and I add my welcome to that of Mike and Celeste. If you're new here, I would love to meet you after the service. So along with the global church, we are in the season of Lent, about 40 days leading up to Easter. Lent is based on the 40 days of Jesus in the wilderness, which is itself based on the 40-year wanderings of Israel. Our Lord's temptation, that's what we are seeking to experience as he prepares for the cross. And we're wandering around the wilderness with Israel. Lent is that season in which the church turns her face towards the wrath of God. The wrath of God. Because we're looking towards the cross, which is this most pristine and clear picture of our God's wrath. Would you pray with me as we, this is a hard topic, and so I'm going to invite you to please pray for me, even as you pray with me. Father in heaven, we come to you. We thank you for your word. Thank you that it is given to us in love. And thank you that you delight in being merciful to us. Oh Lord, we ask that you would be pleased with the meditation of our hearts and our minds, O oh Lord. In Christ's name, amen. So last week was the golden calf part one. And this week is golden calf part two. So let me remind you what has happened up to this point. So the people make a promise to the Lord in a kind of wedding ceremony in Exodus 24. They cut a covenant together. And then Moses goes up the mountain of Mount Sinai to receive some instructions from the Lord. And as soon as he's gone, things do not go well for the people. They decide to make a golden calf to represent the Lord. And they worship and make sacrifices and they feast before the calf. And the Lord is not pleased. They've just broken the covenant that God had just made with them. And so he sends Moses down the mountain, and Moses breaks these stone tablets where God had written his law on them, a symbol of how Israel has already broken their promise. And we left off last week with Moses burning the golden calf and confronting his brother Aaron for his part in the apostasy. And now we're going to look at Moses' mediation with the Lord. So this is our word today, that Jesus Christ has atoned for God's righteous anger against the angry idolaters on the cross, the greatest appeal of love. Jesus Christ has atoned for God's righteous anger against angry idolaters on the cross, the greatest appeal of love. We're going to look first at the anger of God, the appeal of Moses, and the atonement. The anger, the appeal, and the atonement. So first anger. The Lord's response to this golden calf is righteous anger. And verse 8 recounts God's charge against his people. They've turned away from God's command and instead worshiping a golden calf. And he says in verse 10, now therefore, this is to Moses, therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. My, my wrath. I know that God's wrath is difficult for us to reckon with. I'm sure you're thinking, oh great, this Sunday it's God's wrath. That's exactly what I wanted this morning. We don't like to imagine God is angry. 
But God reveals his wrath to us in Scripture, meaning he's not ashamed of his wrath. He does not hide it. He wants us to know it because it's part of his perfect character. And so we need to look at the wrath of God. But first, we need to look at our own wrath towards God, our wrath towards God. Let me explain. The scriptures explain that we naturally don't just disbelieve God, that we disobey him, but that we're actually angry towards God. Let me give you a quick survey. Colossians 1.21 And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Romans 8.7 For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. We're so angry, so hostile, that we even hate him, Paul says in Romans 1. We are haters of God. Now you might be saying, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not angry at God. Just wait. Just wait for the right wilderness. Because there's nothing that brings out our true anger at God than the wilderness. Right? Israel is in the wilderness. And the wilderness exposes our true anger. All the heresies we believed about God. All the ways we've Im- imagined him in our own image. I thought God was going to give me blank. You, you fill in the blank. And when he doesn't, our reaction is often anger. And God comes to us in the wilderness and says, you don't really know me, do you? You are serving yourself and calling it religion. Let me illustrate. Sometimes religious people are the most angry. The, the movie Amadeus is a fictional rivalry between the composer Amadeus Mozart and Antonio Salieri. And Salieri, the, the movie is from his perspective. Salieri is a, a very pious man praying to God as a child that if God would make him a famous composer, then Salieri would give his life over to God. And Salieri is morally upright and chaste. And when he meets Mozart, Mozart is this deplorable, immoral man. But Salieri is angry because he realizes that here is the musical genius. It's Mozart. Here is the musical genius that he longed for, that he wanted to be. And he's furious. And there's a scene when he prays to God while looking at a crucifix. He says, from now on, we are enemies, you and I. Because you choose for your instrument a boastful, lustful, smutty, infantile boy and give me for award only the ability to recognize the incarnation. Because you are unjust, unfair, unkind, I will block you. I swear it. And he takes the crucifix off the wall and throws it in the fire. Anger. Anger against God. One of the ways we hide our anger against God is actually idolatry. Listen to how Pastor Tim Keller puts it. One of the ways you hide your hatred of God from yourself is by creating pictures of God in your mind that you can control, that you can master. We hate the God of the Bible because we can't master him. What we really want is a God we can control, 
that you can chain up, that you're on top of. And so we create in our mind a view of God that we say, that's the God I believe in. See, I, I believe in God. I believe in a God of love. That's the God I believe in. But the very fact that you have to create a God that you can master shows that you hate a God you can't. The very fact that you have to create a God you can master shows that you hate a God you can't. That's exactly what Israel was doing with the golden calf, right? The golden calf was a rejection of who God is. They were not worshiping the golden calf God, but the Lord through the golden calf. They were saying, this is who you are, God. I want you to be like this. That's why we don't do images of God. Because nothing would, would, <clears throat> would do justice to his resplendent glory and beauty. My friends, we create idols in our minds all the time. We constantly try to squeeze God into our box. Bible teacher Paige Fenton Brown says, it's like the Louvre calling you and saying, we would like to give you Monet's water lilies. And when it comes to your house, you pull out a frame that you already own at your house and you start cutting down Monet's water lilies to fit your frame. God gives us himself and we try to put him in a box we've created for him, destroying the masterpiece of who he really is. And when you do that, you end up with a God in your own image, a God who is not the true God. That's what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. We've been doing it ever since. Do you see that? Do you, do you see the anger that we have? We had a staff retreat this week, and Connolly Gillum was leading us through this passage in Luke 7, in which the, this widow, widow's only son dies. She's a widow. Her only son dies. And Jesus sees this, and he comes to her, and he says, do not weep. And as we were reflecting on that passage, I sensed in my own heart this anger, this self-righteous anger. How dare you, Jesus, tell me not to weep. I'm entitled to this. You didn't have to let him die in the first place. As I'm processing this fear, it's convicting me of my self-righteous grief. Self-righteous grief. We are angry. We have this anger, this enmity that is utterly unrighteous. Because when it comes down to it, friends, everything that we have, every good thing that we have is from God. At Christmas, children, when you're given gifts, you don't respond with, I hate you. I don't want you as my parents. That would be ridiculous. And friends, our own hatred, our own frustration, our idolatry is absolutely absurd. It's, it's ridiculous. It's unrighteous. It is not right. And what we deserve for our unrighteous anger and idolatry is God's wrath. You could say it this way. The wrath of God is a righteous response to our unrighteous wrath against God. The wrath of God is a righteous response to our unrighteous wrath against God. You see, God has every right to be angry. God has every right to be furious that his people have directly disobeyed him. And even said, he's a golden calf representative. He has every right to be angry. But there's an important element you need to know also about God's righteous wrath, his anger. It's always patient. 
In fact, next week we're going to look at Exodus 34, in which the Lord reveals his name to Moses. And he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Slow to anger. How is God slow to anger here? Well, let's look back at verse 10. It says, God, God says to Moses, Now therefore, let me alone, that I may pour out my wrath. Commentators know how strange it is that God is saying, leave me alone. Like, what power does Moses have to interfere with God's, like, it's strange, it's weird. And that's just the point. In saying, leave me alone, God is actually inviting Moses to interfere. It's like that time when your significant other in emotional distress says, leave me alone. And the subtext is like, don't leave me. <laughs> right? You know what I'm talking about? This is exactly what God is doing. He's inviting Moses to interfere. He's slow to anger. He's saying, this is my anger. But Moses, don't you want to intercede for your people? And that's exactly what Moses does, which brings us to our second point, the appeal. So Moses takes the Lord's setup to intercede, and he does this through verses 11 through 13. And first, what is his approach? What is his appeal? First, he challenges the Lord on a very important point. You see, the Lord had disowned his people in his speech. In verse 7, he says, your people, Moses. They're your people. And then he says, this people, in verse 9. You know what Moses says? In verse 11, he says, oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? He says, no, these are your people, Lord. It is your covenant people who you marry. This is your wife. This is your son. And Moses keeps the pressure up in verse 11. These are your people who you have brought out of the land of Egypt. You're the one that did it, not me. You did it. And you did it with great power and with a mighty hand. Like, don't you remember the plagues in the Red Sea? These are your people because you saved them. You saved them from Egypt and from slavery. And you made them their, your own. What is Moses doing here? He's appealing to the Lord's covenant faithfulness. He's putting God's promises right back in God's face and saying, don't you see this? Look at verse 13. He says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self. And then Moses proceeds to quote God back to himself. He says, you swore this land to this people. In other words, Moses is saying, are you going to be true to your word or not? Do you, do you feel that boldness that Moses has towards the Lord? And the appeal works. The Lord listens. Why? Why? If the golden calf is a fundamental mistaken image of who God is, Moses' appeal is accurately reflecting back to God who he actually is. Do you see that? He's saying, I know who you are, Lord. You are a Lord who's merciful. You are the Savior. You are the Redeemer. And the Lord delights in that. Moses, you know me. They don't. But you know me. And then verse 14, the Lord relented. I know that verses like that have been used against the Lord's sovereignty. 
as in how does God change his mind? Can God really change his mind? I don't think it needs to contradict God's sovereignty. Remember, the Lord invited the intercession. We need a view of God's sovereignty that takes seriously our intercession because the scripture affirms both. Can we change God's mind? Yes. Is God still and always sovereign? Yes. But don't miss the point here. The Lord hears Moses' appeal and he grants it, even sets Moses up for it because the Lord loves our intervention. He invites our boldness to change his mind. Over and over again in the prophets, the Lord will say, this is the judgment that is coming to Israel. And the whole point of that is to actually invite the prophet to say, no, don't do it, Lord. And he listens time and time again because even though the Lord has righteous wrath, he delights in showing mercy. He is patient. The Lord loves to respond to our intercession and prayer. Why else would he invite us to pray? Because he delights to hear us intercede. And Moses' bold appeal gives us a model. In your prayers, do you claim his possession? Do you say, do this for me because I'm your child. I'm your son. I'm your daughter. We pray God's word and his promises back to him. You who began a good work in me. You who justified me and saved me. Be faithful to bring it to completion of the day of Jesus Christ. You see, our Lord loves our bold appeals, especially when they reflect who he truly is. Now let's go to the third and last point, the atonement. So Moses successfully appeals to the Lord, and he goes down the mountain. And when he sees the golden calf, it's his turn to become angry. He has this righteous wrath. And he's holding the tablets of stone, and he breaks them. And now that God's law has been broken, there are consequences. Moses calls Israel to turn from their idolatry to come back to the Lord's side. And if they won't, death is the decree. Friends, verses 25 through 29 are terrifying. They're absolutely terrifying. And they're meant to be. Let me offer you four quick thoughts. First, God had warned them. Exodus 22, 20, just 10 chapters before this. God says, Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. The Lord laid out the death penalty for idolatry. Secondly, good news for us, no part of this is prescriptive for us. Christians no longer live under the Old Testament. We are a New Testament people, and ours is a spiritual battle, not against flesh and blood. We follow Jesus, who taught us that those who live by the sword will die by the sword. But, thirdly, there is still a spiritual lesson for us. Because every sin warrants death. Celeste prayed this. She said, for the wages of sin is death. Paul says in Romans 6.23. And so we have here in this, in this death penalty uh, an illustration, a metaphor for what comes for those who do not put their trust in the Lord. We deserve death. Fourth, and last part of this. Fourth, might our unease with this passage 
actually indicate our own golden calf. In other words, do we skip over such passages in the Bible because they do not comport with who we want God to be? Like, is this part of the frame that we cut out? Because I want to worship a God of love, not this God of wrath. Might our sense of justice be an idol, a golden cap, a frame that cuts off parts of who God is? Are we like Thomas Jefferson, the patron saint of Charlottesville? Just going to believe what we want in the Bible to cut out parts of it. Now, even after justice is served, the guilt still lingers, which is why Moses in verse 30 says, The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. To atone simply means to cover, to cover over as in an offense. It means to make reparation or restitution for a wrong. So the wrong is covered over. The wrong is made right. Even after the death penalty is served, the need for atonement lingers. And so Moses goes up to see if he can make atonement. And he begins with this confession, a confession of sin that recognizes the size and specificity of the sin. He says, alas, verse 31, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. He's honest. Last week, Aaron missed this. He didn't confess. And Moses says, this is a great sin. And he's specific about it. This is the sin of idolatry. Friends, confession of general sin does little for our atonement. It cannot atone for our sins. We need to be specific about the sins that we confess. And then Moses attempts to atone. And it's quite stunning and unexpected. Look at verse 32. But now, Moses says, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. It's incredible. You don't know this because we didn't talk about earlier in Exodus. When God first comes to Moses and says, I want you to lead my people out, Moses said, no thank you. I don't want any part of that. And then over and over again as Moses is leading the people through the wilderness, they're, they're awful to him. They're grumbling. And Moses says, look at these terrible people you've given me, Lord. But do you see the great love that Moses has now? He is so concerned for them that he's willing to lay down his life that they might live. He knows that they need to be atoned for. And friends, we need to reckon with the fact that there is such a thing as corporate guilt. Moses is atoning for the sin of the people. Not just one person, the sin of the people. But how does the Lord respond to this attempt to atone? He actually refuses it. He says, those who sin against the Lord will be blotted out of his book. And the Lord will also send a plague to punish them. But... There's mercy in here. There's a kind of compromise that Moses and the Lord seem to have arranged, arrived on. Because the Lord assures Moses that he is going to lead the people to the promised land. So even though they've had this terrible, terrible breach, God says, I'm still going to take you. We're still going to get to the promised land. 
And we see here both the successes and the limits of Moses' mediation, of his intercession. His, his appeal for the Lord to stay his destructive wrath succeeds, but he is unable to make atonement for the people's sins. Not for lack of trying. He offers his very life, but the Lord rejects it. Not because it wasn't fitting. It was a fitting idea. But the problem was Moses. He was not a fitting sacrifice. Because he too deserved God's righteous wrath. Friends, everything about the Old Testament, the, the sacrifices, there will be this day of atonement that Israel will, will sacrifice and cleanse their guilt. And yet everything about it, everything about atonement in the Old Testament is temporary. It's pointing forward. It's pointing forward to the ultimate atonement. The only one who could truly atone for the people's sins. The Lord Jesus Christ. The true mediator. The one who Moses points forward to. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, the day before he is crucified, Jesus is sweating blood, praying to the Lord, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. What cup? It was the cup of God's wrath. The cup was a metaphor, an Old Testament metaphor, for all of the unrighteousness and the injustice that the Lord was going to pour out his wrath upon. That is what Jesus is holding up to the Lord. That is what he's going to drink on the cross. You see, from eternity past, God the Father and God the Son had a very similar conversation to God and Moses. Except that the Son knew that atonement had to be made. That if forgiveness for our great sin could be granted, it would have to require the exchange of his life. And so Jesus said, please blot out me out of your book. So that those who deserve to be blotted out could be forgiven and saved. But unlike Moses, God accepted his sacrifice. That's exactly what Jesus Christ is doing on the cross. He is suffering the Father's wrath, not just for one sin, but for millions of sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross of Christ, the Father's wrath was absolutely atoned for. You can think of this as exhausted. There's no more wrath for those who hide themselves in Jesus, who stand at the foot of the cross and say, this is a word about me. Let's look back at the New Testament reading we read. Romans 5, 6 through 10. You see elements of this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we reconciled him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? You see, Paul is describing this great exchange because at the cross, we who were unrighteous have been given the righteousness of Christ. 
We are justified before the Lord. Atonement has been made. And we've been saved from God's wrath. This is what the Lord did for us while we were still God's enemies, it says. While we still had that hostility, that wrath towards God. This is how he acts towards us. You might say, I just can't believe in a God of wrath. But don't you see the cross doesn't make any sense at all without God's wrath? What did Jesus die for? What was he doing? If he wasn't atoning for God's wrath, then he was just another martyr. But you see, the measure of God's wrath actually reveals the measure of his love. Do you see verse 8? This was a demonstration of his own love. You see, on the cross, God demonstrates his love for us because he knows that we can't handle his wrath. He knows it. And so he says, I'm going to pour it out on myself, on my very son, because I love you. Friends, that is the length and the intensity, the height, the depth, the breadth of our Lord's love for you. The cross has the power to melt our anger towards him completely. You see, we were God's enemies. We were hostile, angry, wrathful. But what happens when your sworn enemy sacrifices his own self for you? If you're arrogant, it enrages you even more. But if you're humble, you turn and repent all your anger. You can trust him trust him i just have one point of application it's this i don't want you to do anything i don't want you to do anything what did the people do to intercede for themselves nothing what did the people do to atone for themselves nothing do you get the point it is only the Lord Jesus. It is only the Lord Jesus that can atone for our sins. We can do nothing. Instead, I just want you to hear the Lord's love for you. The Lord God demonstrates his love for you. That when you were still his enemy, he suffered his own wrath. Because he loves you. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father. We thank you for this beautiful atonement that you have made. Oh Lord, we pray that we would see you for who you truly are. That we would not frame certain parts of you out. That we would know you. And Lord, would you forgive us for our anger, our foolish anger towards you. Would we instead see you as our life and joy and peace. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.